Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. Today we are going to look at the platform puzzle game Lemmings, developed by DMA Designs and published by Cygnosis in 1991 for the Amiga computer and later ported to a bunch of other platforms. But before we get to that, I do want to talk about the fact that this is a brand new podcast. Now, this may be the first episode of our new podcast that we're launching today, but it is not my first podcast. I have actually done two different podcasts over the course of my life. Um, actually, over the past few years, there were two podcasts, one that I released back in around 2018 called Point and Click, an adventure game podcast where we talked all about point and click adventure games. And then shortly thereafter, I guess maybe a year and a half or so after, I released a podcast called Saved Games, which was a little bit broader beyond just the point-and-click adventure game genre to look at all sorts of games. The point-and-click podcast lasted around a year. Saved Games only lasted for a couple episodes, and that's because life got in the way. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Tony. And I have been a gamer my entire life. I have loved all sorts of video games, whether that's on console or arcade or at the on computers. I have just loved every single kind of game out there. And I have played a bunch over the course of my life. I'm a 40-year-old guy, almost 41. So I've actually had the benefit of growing up throughout the gaming industry's actually birth, creation, and evolution over the course of the last 40 years. So I've experienced a lot of different things over the course of my life as it relates to gaming, and I've enjoyed it immensely, and I will probably always be a gamer. Uh, but I have always wanted to share my ideas and talk with others across the community about these different gaming experiences, and the podcast that I had hosted up to this point allowed me the opportunity to do that. Now, I also have two young children. At the time of this recording, my daughter is six. And my son is just around 19 months old, so things are a little hectic. And to be totally fair and totally honest, when I had stopped doing the other podcast that I had been hosting, the reason for that is because life just got too complicated. Life was just very, very tricky because of time commitments and things like that. But, you know, things are starting to settle down. Things are starting to get a little bit more stable, and I decided that this was the time, this was the right time to come back and start podcasting again. I always enjoyed it. I always had a great time doing it. I'm hoping that we can build a community here and we can start doing that with this new podcast, which is really focused on the entirety of gaming and those gaming experiences that we've all had from our youth or just from older titles and really want to focus on what we feel when we go back and play those games today. Now, in some cases, we may not be going back to play a game we've played previously. Might be a brand new game to us, so there might not be any nostalgia there. Other games might have been things we experienced when we were young and we want to re-experience. We're going to run the gamut in this podcast, and I'm sure as we start and continue to build our community, we will find different experiences that individuals may or may not have had, and we will talk about them. I'm incredibly excited about this. 
I do want to build a community around this podcast and just gather a bunch of like-minded people to have discussions with. So I do just for everybody's reference, I do have an email that if you want to reach out and either give me feedback or talk about the episodes or talk about specific games, feel free to reach out. That email is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. So if anybody wants to reach out, these are all obviously very, very new since this podcast itself is very new. But I am really hoping that over the course of time, we can grow the community and actually make this be something special. With that housekeeping out of the way, and just for reference, I usually tend to get pretty much to the point. There's not a whole heck of a lot of fluff in my podcast, so forgive me for a few minutes at the beginning of the podcast to just kind of go through some of the housekeeping kind of items. But now we are going to shift, and we're going to start talking about the game that we came together to discuss, and that is Lemmings. Before we do that, just because this is the very first episode, I want to go through and talk about what the anatomy of an episode is. When you listen to Classic Gaming Today, what should you expect? Well, first, we will talk history. And what I mean there is, how was the game developed? What is the historical context around the creation of the game? I love learning about gaming history. I love learning about all of the ins and outs behind why these classic games were created or how they were created I just find it incredibly interesting, and I want to be able to share that with everybody. So the first part of every podcast episode will be a historical deep dive, so to speak, into the creation of the game along with the historical context of the game that we're going to be discussing. Once we go through the history, we will then pivot and do a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because... I am not going to assign numeric scores or grades to the specific games that we talk about, but I do want to talk about some elements of each of the games. Primarily, we'll look at the things that most reviews kind of look at. Things like graphics. How does the game look? How do the graphics hold up today? And that's a little bit tricky because, obviously, graphics have progressed a lot beyond some of the games that we will be talking about. But... Is the graphics or are the graphics stylized appropriately so that they still look good, even though they may not be the most technically proficient graphics compared to 3D acceleration and ray tracing and everything else that we have today? We will also look at the sound and music of the games. That's sound effects. That's the musical score or tracks that accompany the gameplay that we're experiencing. So how does that sound? Does it sound good? And just for everybody's awareness... A lot of people I know have had mixed reactions when it comes to musical files, like MIDI kind of files, musical instrument digital interface, where the sounds aren't real instruments, but it's all computer synthesized kind of stuff. I think MIDI and just musical instruments that originate from the computer and are either via sample or FM synthesis or whatever the case might be, I think they are absolutely charming. Now, of course, some of them are not that great, but... I find in general those kind of that musical style or that kind of music just brings me back to when I was young playing these games. And it is just such a nostalgia trip for me that I I don't have any issue with them whatsoever. Of course, I also love a good orchestral instrumental or instrumented uh, soundtrack as well, but I have no issue with with MIDI 
files or, or MIDI based soundtracks at all. In any event, we will talk sound and music. We will also talk narrative and story. Now, not every game is going to have a particularly strong narrative, but to the extent it does, we will talk about it. Then we'll also talk about the playability of the game and the overall controls. What does it feel like to actually play or control the characters on the screen? And that then dovetails directly into the overall feel that you get from playing the game. Now, this is a very subjective kind of thing. It's basically saying when I sit down or when we sit down and we play a game, what does it feel like? What are the emotions that it evokes? Is it something that evokes joy? Is it frustration? Is it something that you're happy or is it fun? Whatever the case might be, what does that overall feel when you sit down to play the game? And then based on all of that discussion, we will assign a verdict for the game. And basically the verdict in this case is, is the game worth playing today? Understanding that all of the games we're going to be talking about have been around for a while and were released a long time ago. Is it still worth it to explore these experiences today? Uh, and there's going to be a few different categories that we will assess or that we'll assign to each of the games we talk about. One is, hey, this thing is a classic. It is truly a classic. It doesn't matter whether it was released yesterday or released 30 years ago you should still play it. I don't care if you enjoy the genre or not. It is something that is just a landmark in gaming and you should play it regardless. Second category is, well, if you have nostalgia for the game, yeah, re-experience it. I think that'll be a really good thing and it'll give you that same exact feeling that you felt when you played it originally, albeit even exponentially magnified by the fact that you're experiencing that nostalgia trip that everybody knows and loves. Or if you really like the genre that it's in, but maybe you didn't experience it before, go for it. Probably a good experience and probably something you will enjoy. Third category is, eh, can't really recommend it. Eh, It was probably okay at the time, or maybe it wasn't, who the heck knows. But I can't really recommend you to play it today. If you really want to try it out, I'm not going to stop you. I really can't stop you. But I'm not going to be able to recommend it and say, yeah, this is something that I would give my stamp of approval to unless you're really interested or curious about what it is. And then the final category is reserved for those games that, for whatever reason, should be left to the historical footnotes or left in the annals of history because they're just not something you should need to experience today. There's other experiences out there, whether they were older or newer, that just completely overshadows the game that we'd be talking about, and we don't really need to go down that path. So that is the anatomy of an episode. I'm going to stop talking overview, and we are going to get started talking about Lemmings. Lemmings' game, developed by DMA Designs and published by Cygnosis in 1991 for the Amiga computer, which was then, as I stated earlier, ported to a number of other platforms. Now, the history behind this, or the story behind the creation of this game, is pretty darn interesting. And it starts in the mid-80s. And in order to talk about this, we have to talk about the computing scene from the early to mid-1980s. Because, at the time, you didn't have a ton of large, gigantic developers creating a lot of different computing experiences. You didn't have people that had fully figured out how to deliver the experiences that would become synonymous with computer gaming in the future. No, instead, you had such a large degree of experimentation 
out there and you had a ton of people that were just trying things. Computers were relatively new from a gaming perspective. Now, certainly there were games that existed for computers well before the mid 80s. And you can look back into the 70s and even even before that to look at some of the text based games that were out there and even some of the graphical based games that would eventually evolve into arcades and consoles and things like that. But from a computer perspective, generally speaking, computers were thought of as business machines at the time. You had some computers that could display some graphics or could play some games, and certainly there were developers and publishers that were creating games for computers, but at the time, they were primarily business machines. But in the amateur community, there were a lot of individuals that were getting together and were meeting in computer clubs that were really dedicated to trying to figure out how to create these gaming experiences. They enjoyed playing games and they wanted to create these games for other people. And to talk about Lemmings, we have to focus on a few key individuals. And this is not meant to be an all-inclusive, everybody who worked on Lemmings kind of thing. But there were a few individuals that were really instrumental in getting this thing going. They were Russell Kay, Mike Daly, Steve Hammond, and David Jones. So those four individuals met at an amateur computer club back in the mid-80s. And it was, it was a club called the Kingsway Amateur Computer Club, which was located in Dundee, Scotland. So this is over in Europe. And these individuals met together, and they started just kind of collaborating and figuring out how they could create different games and different gaming experiences. And once again, this was purely an amateur kind of thing. It was just getting together and trying to figure out how they could utilize computers to the best of their ability to create awesome, or in some cases not so awesome, gaming experiences. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about microcomputers, which is a little bit of a different subset of computers than what some people might be familiar with across the rest of the world. So computers in the United States mostly were business-related. In Europe and some other territories, there were microcomputers which had a much larger gaming kind of following. And you think about machines like the Amiga or the Commodore 64, those microcomputers were actually pretty darn big in Europe, less so in North America and some of the other America-based territories. But those computers, generally speaking, had some pretty advanced graphic and, in some cases, music capabilities, or at least sound capabilities. The Amiga, in particular, was light years ahead of many of the other computing systems that were available at the time. So, when these group, when the group of people, when Russell K., Mike Daly, Steve Hammond, and David Jones got together, they started focusing on these microcomputers to create these kinds of experiences that they wanted to create. And primarily that meant working on the Amiga, since that was pretty much one of the most advanced microcomputers of the time. It gave them a lot more flexibility to be able to create the kinds of experiences that they wanted to try to create. So the group decided to form a company, and they eventually settled on the name DMA Design. And in this case, DMA is one of those acronyms that is not really an acronym, but is kind of sort of acronym, and I will explain. So DMA, if you listen to any of the interviews with, with the individuals that started up the company, DMA, generally speaking, stands for Direct Memory Access, which is commonly known as a computer programming term, which 
given that all of these individuals were really into computer programming, kind of makes sense. You could also, uh, you've also may have heard the term DMA if anybody listening to the podcast has worked on retro computing hardware, specifically sound cards, where you might have to set your DMA uh, within your auto exec bat file and make sure that your uh, set blaster command is updated. I think it's auto exec bat. I don't think it's config sys for the set blaster. I could be wrong about that. I, I have a bunch of retro computers, but right now, for whatever reason, I'm not entirely sure which file that goes in. I think it's auto exec bat though. In any event, so DMA stands for direct memory access. And according to an interview that I had heard between the group, they said that, that, uh, abbreviation or that acronym stood for maybe like a night before DMA just became DMA. And there was really then no other significance behind the letters of DMA design. You could almost think of it similarly to id software for anybody who knows the story behind id and the development that they had eventually worked on. So id software is most famously known for first person shooter titles like Wolfenstein 3D and Doom and Quake and all of those great titles. We'll probably talk about id on another date, but I had actually done some research about id for one of my prior podcasts and id, the, the company name ID right now basically doesn't stand for anything. You could think about id as almost from a psychological perspective. It is all about the trying to grasp whatever it is you want without regard to to decency or other people's needs or whatever. It's basically the most basic human instinct of trying to get exactly what you want. And that was always what I thought id stood for because most of the first person shooters that they had worked on were very focused on just kind of that instant gratification, very fast, very quick kind of movement. So that was my assumption. It turns out that id actually did at one point stand for a separate phrase, which was ideas from the deep which similar to DMA design kind of got dropped very quickly and it just became id. So minor tangent aside, we have this company DMA design and they were really focused on making games similar to the games that they enjoyed playing in arcades at the time, which they really enjoyed side scrolling shooter kinds of games. So think about games like uh, defender and gradius, those kind of games where it's a side scrolling ship and you have different, enemies or creatures that are flying at you across the screen and you have to dodge their bullets and you have to shoot them and they explode into a bunch of carnage and mess and things like that. So DMA design was really focused on making those kinds of titles for the microcomputers that they were working on. And the two titles that they released as they actually became a company, one of them was named Menace and one of them was named Blood Money. So those were the two games they worked on immediately previous to Lemmings. And at the time, they had actually gotten the attention of a pretty big uh, pretty big publisher at the time known as Cygnosis. Now, Cygnosis had published some pretty high-quality titles. Probably their most well-known from the time frame was Shadow of the Beast, which was a side-scrolling, beat-em-up, adventure-ish kind of game that they got some notoriety and fame for. But Cygnosis had caught wind of DMA design, and they ultimately decided to publish their games. So Menace and Blood Money, Cygnosis published, and it kind of fit in with the overall style of what Cygnosis was was trying to do. And after those two games were released, or after Menace and Blood Money were released, two eh, relatively okay acclaim, I guess. They sold between 20 and 40,000 copies in total, so not a horrible amount, not 
gangbusters, so to speak, but definitely not a bad amount. And after they released those two games, they started to think about what they should work on next. And once again, those two games, very, very traditional side-scrolling kinds of shooter kinds of games. So they started to play around with different ideas. And they were trying to figure out, well, what is the next step? What is the next game that they are going to look at and try to try to create? And they started playing around one day with some sprites and graphics. And sprites, just for anybody who may be unaware, back when computers before 3D acceleration, before all of that kind of stuff, most of what you saw on screen were created by sprites, which were basically just collections of pixels. So if you think about some of the traditional classic games like Mario, Mario himself is a sprite. And you can look at all the different pixels, and if you bring up like a pixel editor, you can see the individual pixels that go into that sprite. The sprite is the collection of that pixel. So DMA Design started playing around with a software program called Deluxe Paint. Now, Deluxe Paint, we need to talk about for just a couple minutes, because this was one of those software packages that actually enabled the computing industry and the gaming industry to become what it would eventually become. Deluxe Paint, you wouldn't think about that, just thinking about a graphics program. And at the time, it was very advanced. But if you look at it in comparison to what we have available today, definitely not so advanced. But if you look at Deluxe Paint, it allowed so many different graphical options for just creating graphics and being able to almost build pseudo game engines within it or at least pseudo game backgrounds and integrate stuff and basically the the time from going to deluxe paint to game engine and actually seeing things move around and animate and things like that was very very short which basically meant that it was instrumental in helping individuals create games and deluxe paint was used on a ton of games back then a lot of games that were on the amiga lucas arts as an example of use Deluxe Paint almost exclusively for a lot of their point-and-click adventure games. And I do want to just relay a quick story about LucasArts. So if anybody has played The Secret of Monkey Island, you will recognize that the main character's name is Guybrush Threepwood. And some people may say, well, where did that name come from? How, how did anybody think of the name Guybrush, just as an example? Well, funny story. In Deluxe Paint, there was a menu for brushes. Brushes were one of the common graphical tools that were used within Deluxe Paint. And when LucasArts was making The Secret of Monkey Island, they had saved a file before the name of the character was even understood or even created. They saved a file and they called it The Guy Brush because I guess that was the brush that was used for the main character sprite that they were creating. And later on, I guess somebody was looking at the file, and I'm not sure if that was Ron Gilbert or somebody else, but somebody was looking at the file, and they saw the guy brush, and they kind of thought, well, hey, that might not be a bad name for the character himself. So ultimately, that brush file and the naming of it, which was the guy brush, is what eventually led to Guy Brush Threepwood getting his name. So I know totally unrelated to Lemmings, but I thought that was an interesting little story about the Lux paint. So in any event, Deluxe Paint is a big deal, or was a big deal at the time. And DMA Design was working around in Deluxe Paint and playing around with different animations and sprites and characters to try to brainstorm what they might want to look at next. And they, they created some sprites and started to play around with them in some interesting ways. Primarily, they created a bunch of small sprite-based characters and put them into a variety of deadly kinds of situations and just kind of made it funny. So you might have these little small pixel characters that would walk into an area and a mouth would just come out of nowhere and eat it. 
or might get shot and explode into a fiery mess, or might get crushed by a 20-ton block of steel or something like that. And they were just trying to figure out hilarious ways to put these characters through misery. And in the process, they looked at it and they said, you know what, this this actually might be a game. This is something we might be able to get behind and create into something. And that is actually where the concept for Lemmings was born. And the game really was birthed because of some of that experimentation and playing around that they did in Deluxe Paint. And if you ever have a chance, there is an excellent Lemmings documentary available on YouTube where it's basically two hours and there's tons of interviews with everybody that was involved in the making of Lemmings. And part of that video, they actually show the original sprite work and the original animations that I'm referencing when I say about the characters moving across the screen and getting crushed by the blocks or anything like that. You can actually see what that looks like within that documentary. It was very, very interesting. But in any event, that animated demo is what created and eventually grew into the idea for Lemmings. Now, lemmings are, in folklore, these creatures that basically everybody thinks just follows each other and they jump off of cliffs and they don't understand that jumping off the cliff is going to hurt them, so they all jump off the cliff and they all eventually kind of commit suicide, so to speak. That's a common myth. That's not real, from what I understand. I think most of the lemmings that end up dying is just because they're really not great swimmers or they, they don't judge the spots to cross different waterways or rivers appropriately so they end up drowning it's not that they all are just mindless jumping off of cliffs but the lemmings in the game are kind of mindless or at least they are very much followers and by that i mean when lemmings enter a level they basically drop down and they move around and they will move in a single direction until some force or action acts on them whether that is the player clicking on them and assigning a skill or whether they bump into an obstacle or a trap or anything else within the game world, that is the only thing that will stop their forward progress. Otherwise, they will keep moving forward. So you can kind of see how that common myth around the term lemmings eventually led to the behavior of the characters in Lemmings the game. So the, the group with DMA Design started to design the game and they began integrating all sorts of dastardly and dangerous traps into levels. They say it was because they wanted to help guide the player to the eventual goal and try to say, hey, you probably shouldn't go in this direction, maybe go in the other direction or just to kind of help almost. I don't know. Some of those traps, and we'll talk about this when we talk about the actual feeling of playing the game. Some of those traps were kind of crazy so eh, they may say that it was supposed to be helpful. I don't know that I buy it in every single situation. Might might not be exactly the way they are portraying it, but who am I to judge? That's just uh, what they said. Anyway, the interesting thing, or one of the interesting things about developing the game is that they didn't start out by saying, hey, you know what, let's create a bunch of easy levels and then let's build on that to create harder levels and harder levels and harder levels. The development process for the levels in the game was pretty cutthroat from what I could tell. Basically, everybody sat down and they constantly tried to one-up each other. 
they started creating levels that were intentionally hard, and then they went up from there, and they continued to try to iterate on levels to make it harder and harder and harder. Now, because this group had been working on the game, and they kind of had an in-depth knowledge of how the game was functioning and how they could make things work and how they can bend the environment to their will, they very quickly became experts at the game. So it was very, very difficult for anybody to create a super challenging level that would ultimately create a situation where where one of the people in the team couldn't actually solve the puzzle. So this generated a lot of healthy competition, and there were a ton of very difficult levels that were created up front. Now, instead of starting with the easy and working up to the hard, the group started with those hard levels. And then they looked at, well, how could we make this easier? Because they recognized that you couldn't just get into the game and just start up at super insane difficulty and expect anybody to want to stick around and play it. Because there is certainly a learning curve associated with anything, but in particular a puzzle game, you want to be able to ease the player into it. So they had created a bunch of these very difficult levels, and then they went back and they started to make them easier. They started to see, well, okay, how can we take this really difficult level and make it less challenging so that there'd be more of a gradual learning curve? So that might have been changing some of the level layout to make it a little bit easier to navigate. Or maybe they messed around with the mix of skills that were available to the individual lemmings to be assigned so that you had more available of a given skill that might make traversing a level or getting to the eventual end gate of the level a little bit of an easier prospect. So they did that, and they kept iterating and iterating and iterating. And eventually, they arrived at 120 levels throughout the game, split up across four different difficulty levels. So each difficulty level had 30 different levels, And if you wanted to play it from beginning to end, you would start at the very easiest and you would eventually get through all 120 to those really insanely difficult levels. Now, I will say, and we'll talk about this more in a little bit, the learning curve for this game is very smooth. It is one of those games where they don't give you a tutorial. This is a 1991 game. Back then, you didn't really have tutorials. You had manuals. You had uh, basically anything that you were going to pick up in the game. You were either going to pick up from the manual or you were going to pick up by playing the game itself. But games were not designed to hold your hand and games were certainly not going to give you tutorials where they said, hey, this whole level is just about learning something. So press A to continue or, or move left or right or whatever. That just wasn't in game design DNA back in the early 90s. So any game that you played, you kind of had to learn on the fly. Uh, But I will say to the developer's credit, Lemmings was one of those games that, even though they didn't have a tutorial, they ramped the learning curve so smoothly that you felt like you were becoming an expert as you played the game. It was kind of awesome the way they did that. I have no idea if they had fully intended to do that or if that was just happenstance based on how they were designing the levels and how they were designing the difficulty that they were working on, but it really made for a very smooth learning curve in the final product. Now, of course, with any game, there's graphics, there's also a lot of times music that's included, and there is a little bit of an interesting story here in that the original tracks for the game were all effectively ripped off themes from 
50s, 60s kind of television shows. Some of the examples I saw were Batman, A-Team, which I guess was a little bit later, but regardless, Mission Impossible. So basically, the original music for the game was all not just derived, but effectively ripped off from these older television shows, and it created a sense of almost action as you were trying to save these lemmings as they moved around the level and you tried to get them to the exit gate. But unfortunately, copyright law existed. Now, even though the computing industry and computer games in general were kind of the Wild West back then, there was not nearly as much regulation or governance as what exists today, there was starting to be a focus on copyright. And DMA Design didn't really think about it from that perspective. I'm not sure exactly who told them, but they said, basically somebody went to them and said, hey, you know, um, copyright is a thing. And you're going to have an issue if you continue to move forward with the soundtrack that you're putting there because they didn't get licenses to the music. They didn't do anything. They basically just put the music in the game and thought, hey, this sounds great. Can't really do that, unfortunately. So they actually had to go back to the drawing board and remix the soundtrack entirely. And they ended up changing the music to non-copyrighted material, meaning things that had fallen out of copyright, either via age or maybe that wasn't in copyright to begin with. And a lot of the music that was actually included in the game were remixes of classical tunes. Uh, There are also some folklore or folk kind of music included in the game. If you listen to the soundtrack, I can almost guarantee you, you may not know the name of the song, but you will recognize the songs in this game. And the version I played, so I played this game on a... 486DX4, 100 megahertz, pure DOS machine. So I was dealing purely with synthesized music. I did hear that there are some other versions, like the CD version of the game apparently has better music. We'll listen to that, or we'll take a look at that when we get to the music and sound section of the review. But uh, I will say that you can very easily recognize a lot of these tunes. Even if you don't, like I said, you don't know the name, you will recognize the music itself. So... I did mention that prior DMA design games like Menace had sold between 20 and 40,000 copies. So not bad, not great. Lemmings was released and it sold 55,000 copies on its first day of release. So it literally outsold in the first day all of the titles, the two titles at least, that DMA design had worked on previously. Lemmings went on to be ported to a ton of different platforms across different computers and video game consoles. It was ported from Amiga to MS-DOS to the Macintosh to Nintendo to Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis, the CDI. CDI, I love the CDI, by the way. We will talk about the CDI eventually. But it was ported everywhere. It was one of the most widely ported games out there, especially at the time. You can almost think of it comparable to Doom in that it was just ported everywhere. Now, Doom ultimately was ported literally everywhere. You can play it on a, I think you can play it on a toaster oven at this point, but Lemmings was ported to a ton of different places, and that was part of the cultural significance that Lemmings would eventually create. Basically, if you were a child or you had a computer in the early 90s, you probably played some version of Lemmings over the course of your life. I'm, I can almost bet you, I can almost guarantee that everybody that was alive around then, or at least if you were of an age where you can play computer games you and you had a computer, you probably played some type of Lemmings game. Now, I will say 
that every different port that happened had different kinds of capabilities associated with it. Psygnosis as a publisher was really focused on trying to make the games as good as they could be for the platform that they were running on. So as an example, we talked about the Amiga and how that was a very graphically and musically advanced computer program or computer platform. So the Amiga version of Lemmings looked great, sounded great. You convert that to the Commodore 64, it may not look or sound quite as great. MS-DOS is going to sound and look a little bit different. The consoles are going to look and sound a little bit different. The one thing I did uh, notice as, as well is that there were more platform differences beyond just the visual and the audio. There were actually differences in some of the difficulty between platforms. Certain platforms had a different mix of skill sets for different levels than what other platforms did. So I played on the MS-DOS version. I know Amiga had some different skill mixes for some of the levels that might have made things a little bit more difficult. On some of the consoles, like on the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis versions, there were actually other difficulty levels beyond Mayhem. And Mayhem was the top difficulty level in the computer releases. But those consoles had other uh, other difficulty levels beyond that that were even more challenging than Mayhem. Now, some of them were just ported levels from expansion packs and things like that. But regardless, it was a different experience. So each platform kind of got the game that worked the best for that platform. And Lemmings became a cultural phenomenon. Not quite as popular as some of the the current kinds of games that are really just prolific across the entirety of computing computer gaming. But if you, like I said, if you were alive in the 90s, you probably know about Lemmings. Over the course of the years that followed the initial release of Lemmings, there were a ton of follow-ons and sequels that were created, and these were all created by DMA Design itself. Of course, there were others that, that went beyond that. So first, Oh No, More Lemmings, which was a direct expansion to the first game, which had some additional difficulty levels and was basically a, hey, you completed the first, you completed Lemmings, here's more. <laughs> and that's why it's called Oh No More Lemmings. But it was uh, apparently a very difficult game. I did not play that one yet. I do want to get into that eventually, but I did not play that at this point. There were also a number of themed Lemmings game releases. There were some Christmas and holiday Lemmings releases, which were a little bit smaller add-on packs that obviously had some theming around them, around the holidays and things like that. Eventually, there were a couple of actual sequels released, Lemmings 2, which was subtitled The Tribes, uh, which basically took the initial concept of the first game where you had a bunch of lemmings and you had eight core skills that you could assign to them, and they expanded it so that each individual tribe in Lemmings 2 had their own subset of skills that would be applied to whatever environment you were working through. And each tribe had different environments that they had to move through. So Take those eight skills that you had in the original Lemmings and basically blow it up at, by the number of tribes that were in Lemmings 2, and you had a much more complex environment, a much more complex game than what the original Lemmings was. And then eventually there was a Lemmings 3, but at this point DMA Design was ready to move on to something else. They had been working on Lemmings then for years. They had made a lot of, or had a lot of great success with Lemmings at that point. Lemmings 3 was a turning point. They had actually worked out a deal with the Children's Television Workshop, which 
if anybody doesn't know, that is the company behind Sesame Street, which is probably their most well-known property. And they had a deal where Lemmings was becoming such a cultural phenomenon at that point that they were looking at how do we take Lemmings and take it off of the computer screen and make it be an actual media property? How can they take Lemmings and make it into some sort of animated cartoon or, or whatever that could then even blow up more. And if that actually happened, I bet you Lemmings would still be talked about today more so than what it is. But unfortunately, like I said, DMA Design was ready to move on at this point. They did not put their A effort into Lemmings 3. They kind of just wanted to get it done, and that ultimately proved to be its downfall. Lemmings 3 was not critically well-received, certainly not as well-received as the prior releases uh, especially the first one, which got almost universal acclaim when it was released. But that's not to say that Lemmings was a failure. Across all of its properties and platforms, Lemmings would eventually sell over 20 million copies of its game just across all of the platforms that it was released on. That's a major deal. That is a big deal as far as overall sales. So there is a definite legacy here to Lemmings. And even after DMA Design decided to go off and work on different things, there were still numerous spin-offs that continued to be made without their involvement in the Lemmings universe. So, and there's even Lemmings games today. There is a Lemmings game that was recently released on mobile platforms, which I was going to play, but they have some microtransactions in there that are focused on actually generating energy in order to complete levels which to me just was a major, major, major turnoff. In any event, it continues to exist into this day. It's not talked about in the same breath as some of the other landmark computer game or video game titles like Doom or Quake or even things like System Shock. It's just not talked about quite as, as much as those, but it definitely has a legacy. It lives on a bunch of individuals' best game ever lists. And in fact, there is a statue of Lemmings in Dundee today, where DMA Design's original office was, or at least in that same city, there is a statue depicting Lemmings. So it was a big deal. Now, like I said, DMA Design would go on to do other things. They wanted to get out of the Lemmings game and they wanted to do something else. So you might think, well, Lemmings, 20 million copies sold. That's a pretty big deal. That's probably one of their major successes. And I would say, yeah, that was definitely a major success for DMA Design. But in reality, it was not its most successful property because DMA Design over the years would eventually turn into, and this was via acquisitions and mergers and all this kind of stuff, but it would eventually turn into Rockstar North, which some may realize, is the company that would eventually create Grand Theft Auto. Now, Grand Theft Auto, that's one that is still in gaming culture and is extremely significant. So to think about, this company started with a couple of side-scrolling shooter games, eventually created Lemmings, which was a well-revered platform puzzler, and then created Grand Theft Auto. To say that there's a legacy there, and to say that they were successful, would be an understatement. It is now time to transition to our review, or pseudo-review of the game, depending on how you like to classify it. So we are going to transition, and we're going to talk about what it feels like 
to actually play Lemmings. going to dive deeper into what Lemmings is as a game. We talked about the history. Now, what is it? When we say Lemmings is a puzzle platform game, what does that mean? What is the actual concept? So we talked a little bit about this as we were going through the history, but just to give a little bit of an overview, basically you have a bunch of levels spread out across four different difficulty levels. And in each individual level, your goal was to guide a group of animals called lemmings or creatures called lemmings from the entry point of the level all the way through to the end gate. And there would be any number of obstacles, both environmental and traps and things like that, that might be in your way. As we mentioned, the lemmings, as they moved through a level, would always move forward, whatever forward meant for the individual level, until the lemming would hit a barrier or would have some sort of obstacle in its way where it would either bounce back and go in the opposite direction, or in some cases, it could die in any number of horrible ways, like falling off a cliff and getting crushed or walking into a Venus flytrap kind of thing or whatever. It was definitely a little uh, little tricky to try to navigate these levels. Basically, your goal was to save the lemmings. It's not to have them die horrible deaths, although a lot of times that would happen as you're trying to figure out a level. But the goal was to save them. And you have a number of skills, eight skills to be specific, that you would be able to apply to the lemmings in order to help traverse and figure out how to get through an individual level. Before we talk about those skills, I do want to just talk about what the box says, because Back when we had these games in the early 90s or even into the mid to late 90s, you didn't really know what you were getting without reading the box. There were magazines out there you could have been reading, but there wasn't the internet the way it exists today where you could go out there and you could see gameplay reviews or videos or things like that. So basically, you had to deal with either word of mouth, magazines if you got them, or looking at the box. So I'm looking at the Lemmings box right now. And on the front, it says, warning, we are not responsible for loss of sanity, loss of hair, or loss of sleep. And then if you turn it over and look at the back, there are some pictures of different levels within the game. And basically the way the game sells itself is a unique mind-boggling game of multiple skill levels. Take command of the wackiest collection of misdirected rodents ever seen on your screen. So those lemmings would just walk through the levels, and you had to try to save them. I mentioned that there are eight skills that you can apply to lemmings to help get them through a level. And depending on what level you were working on, different skills could or could not be used. So we'll go through the skills real fast, just so that everybody understands what those skills are. You had floaters. Basically, a floater is somebody that they drop off a high height, they will not die. They open up an umbrella and in a comical kind of way, they float very safely down to the ground and then they keep walking in whatever direction they were walking previously. So floaters are instrumental in making sure that you can drop off a high height and not die. You also had climbers. Climbers, basically, what they would do is move forward and then if they reached a barrier that would otherwise make them go in the opposite direction, rather than bouncing around and going in the opposite direction, 
they would just keep going and they would just start climbing up whatever surface is in front of them. Now, there were some limitations there. The climbing had to be pretty much a vertical surface in order to climb up the wall, but it was definitely very useful and that would definitely come into play in some levels where you wanted to isolate certain lemmings to start either building or clearing a path before other lemmings would get there. Crowd control in this game is actually a really, really, really big deal in order to make sure you could actually reach the level requirements because each level, when you're playing through it, it's not just about saving individual lemmings. There were specific requirements for each of the levels that basically said you must save X percent of the total lemmings population. And in each level, the rate at which lemmings would enter the level could be different. Some levels by default would enter very, very slowly, give you a little bit more time to plan. Other lemmings would just drop, or other levels would have lemmings drop in at a ridiculous rate, and you really wouldn't have any time to plan. Now, there is a pause button, by the way, in the game. So technically, you had some time to plan because you could always pause and look at the level and things like that. But the frequency or the rate at which lemmings would enter levels definitely added some difficulty in, in most instances to the experience. Going back to the skills, we also had one of the most critical skills in the game is the blocker. And the blocker, his or her primary role is to make sure that the lemmings behind it would not be able to pass. So think about a hypothetical example. You have a, a level, lemmings are marching off towards a cliff. If you don't do anything to them, they will literally dive off that cliff and die. The first lemming that's in the lead that's going towards that cliff, you might set up as a blocker. That blocker would then stop in place. They'd put their hands out to the side, and then any lemming that walked to them would bounce into the blocker and get bounced in the other direction. So the blocker in that instance kind of acts like a wall in that it caused the lemmings that were immediately going behind it or immediately coming to it to reverse direction. Incredibly useful for controlling crowds. Another key use case for blockers is to, once again, control the crowd. You have some levels where you might set up blockers on two ends of a group of lemmings and basically just have the lemmings bouncing back and forth between them so that you can have your other lemming, like a single lemming, off in the level, either building bridges or knocking down walls or whatever, just to make sure that you didn't lose too many lemmings en route to the percentage requirement that you had for an individual level. So blockers, incredibly important. You also had bombers. Now, bombers were effectively lemmings that you would click on and five seconds later, wherever they're standing, they would explode. Now, sounds a little bit violent, but the way the game handles the animation for the explosion is actually pretty darn cute. It's kind of crazy that they return something so violent into something that was kind of a little bit funny and cutesy. In any event, bombers were very, very important in some levels because as you get to the higher difficulties, some levels take away the normal skills that you'd be able to do to, to dig through a ground or to bash through a level. And you only had bombers that you'd have to use. So you'd have to, the trick here is that you would have to time the bombers correctly so that immediately five seconds after you click it, it would explode in the right place. Now, the way bombers work is it actually applied to the environment around it. It would not kill other lemmings that were near the bombers, but it would destroy the environment around it. So if it was standing on a patch of grass, so to speak, and it exploded, you would create a divot in the land where then lemmings would have to go through that little divot in order to continue moving forward. 
if it exploded near a wall, it would blow the wall up. And depending on how thick the wall was, it might either break all the way through to the other side, or it might just create a hole that that lemmings would once again go into and then bounce back out of. So a useful skill, definitely one that requires a degree of, of actual physical human skill in order to be able to control effectively. Beyond bombers, you also had builders. Now, builders would do exactly what their name suggests. They would build bridges or build ramps so that you could traverse different levels that might have holes in the ground or you might have to build consecutive ramps and bounce back and forth to try to get from a ground floor all the way up to different multiple levels or different levels where the exit might be. Uh, The builders are pretty tricky. And one of the reasons why they're so tricky is as you build... You will eventually, there's going to be levels where you will want to build ramps that effectively go up to a wall and then reverse and go in the opposite direction, continuing up. So almost creating a zigzag step kind of pattern. If you don't build exactly and perfectly up to that wall, if there is a pixel of missing build, you will fall. You will fall to your death, the builder, or just fall in general, and it will not be a great situation for anybody. So the builder takes a lot of finesse to use appropriately, and especially at some of the harder difficulty levels, the builders, you just don't have the resources available to build or to have as many builders as you would need in some cases. So definitely a tricky kind of skill to use effectively. You also have bashers, and bashers were pretty straightforward, basically. You put them at a wall or you you hit bash near a wall and they will bash through it. They'll punch the wall with their hands and they will create a hole in the wall and they'll just keep going. As long as there's something to punch, they're going to keep going, which is another thing because a lot of these skills just work and keep working until there's nothing else to do with that skill. So a basher is going to bash until there's nothing to bash. Even if that means they're going to walk off the edge of the stage, they will keep bashing. A blocker will keep blocking until something else happens to it. And we'll talk about some of that in a little bit, because there is a trick to blockers, to making them walkers again. But I know for a long time, anything that was a blocker, I would just blow up at the end of the level because there was nothing I could do to it. It would just sit there and stay there. Builders are a little bit different in that they will only ever put down 12 blocks before they decide, I'm done. Or I guess more more technically, they run out of bricks. And then you have to, if you still need to build more, you can reactivate them as a builder. But they only have 12 bricks to lay before they move on and want to do something else. Bashers will bash forever. Diggers are basically groups that were lemmings that will dig into the ground. And once again, they will keep going until they find nothing, (laughs) until they drop through the world, or they hit an obstacle that they can't dig through. There are certain... Um, obstacles like metal blocks and things like that where you can't dig through or you can't bash through. So they do have those environmental kinds of things in the game as well. And then finally, you have miners. Now, miners are a lot like diggers, but instead of digging straight down, which diggers do, miners will dig on a diagonal. So this is actually a skill that gets really, really, really useful as you go up in the difficulty levels because... In order to get to certain places, you need to create ramps for the lemmings to walk. Otherwise, if the wall is too steep that they're approaching, they will just bounce right off the wall and they'll go in the other direction. So these ramps become very, very important. The miner is how you get these nice ramps 
And once again, this is a tricky kind of skill to use as well, because trying to judge the angle of the ramp to make sure that the ramp ends or the mine shaft ends where a lemming will be able to then climb up it without having to have the climbing skill, because a lot of these skills are very, very limited as far as how their availability is for each of these levels. In order to create the appropriate mine shaft for that to happen, it's a little tricky. So, Based on those eight skills, based on that combination of skills, or whatever the combination of skills is, the number of resources or the number of skills you can apply in a given level and the overall level layout, that's basically what created the level difficulty for each of, for the entire game. So you could look at it and you could say, okay, for a given level, it has this layout, it has this number of each skill that you can apply so that is, that's basically how it creates the difficulty for the game. So that is the general overview of, of the game. I want to talk more specifically about each of the categories that we mentioned earlier in the podcast around what does, when we say we're doing a review, what does that really mean? Well, we will talk about the graphics, the sound and music, the narrative or story where it exists. Spoiler alert, doesn't really exist so much in this game the playability and controls, and then the overall feel of playing the game itself. So we'll start with graphics. The only thing I could say here is that the graphics were incredibly effective, especially given when it was released. Now, the graphics were very cute. They, the palettes were very bright. The, it felt really, really pleasing to the eyes to look at. You could almost look at these graphics and think, hey, you know, that, that might be like an indie retro title today. It's not quite as clean as some of the titles that are released today. It, it doesn't have that that perfect kind of anti-aliasing that a lot of the, even some of the pixel games that are released today just feel a little smooth. This is definitely not that. You can, you can feel the blockiness of these pixels in the game, but it works. It works well. And the animation in the game, the animation of the graphics, considering that they were pixel graphics, is just absolutely phenomenal. I will reference the documentary on YouTube that I had mentioned previously. There was one section where they show how those individual pixel graphics were animated. And you have a very limited color palette. And to be able to create the amount of character that each of these lemmings had when moving and being animated, whether they were animated through their skills or whether they were just walking around, to create the character and have basically an, I think it was an 8 by 10 block of pixels. So I guess, I don't know, 80 pixels maybe to work with and a very limited color palette to be able to get that across and to get those actions across. And the amount that they were able to build in here from a graphical perspective is just mind-boggling to me they were able to do this, especially given this was 1991. So graphics-wise, I think this holds up today. I, you, nobody's going to look at it and think, hey, I need a RTX 3090 to run this thing because you certainly do not. But if you look at it, if you appreciate retro pixel kind of graphics, you will appreciate this game. The graphics hold up today. The sound and the music, eh, it's okay. I mean, we talked about the fact that the music was effectively non-copyrighted, classical or folk music, and they work they work all right. I mean, I will say that as I as I played the game, and you will play the game for a while. If if you if you work through the game without any sort of walkthrough, without any sort of hints or things like that, some levels will take you some time to complete. So there's plenty of time to listen to the music. 
and it's okay. It will it will definitely stick with you a bit just because of the repetition of having to go through the levels over and over and over again. But it's okay. It worked. It worked within the confines of the game. I actually think that the TV themes might have worked a little bit better. I would have loved to have played Lemmings with the Mission Impossible theme playing in the background. I could just picture it now. And just thinking about that makes me happy. And I wish there was an opportunity to be able to play the game with its original soundtrack. Unfortunately, I don't think it exists. But if it did, I would love to play it. Now, I did mention earlier that the music was a little bit different depending on the platform and depending on the version of the game. So I do just want to do a quick compare so that everybody can hear what the music sounded like. Most of the music you're hearing here throughout the podcast and the different interludes and things like that come from various versions of the game. So I want to take an opportunity to look very specifically at a couple of platform differences. So we're going to take the same exact track and we're going to compare across at least a subset or a small portion of each track. We're going to compare across different platforms. So we are going to start with the Amiga, which this was the very first release. It was released on the Amiga originally before it was ported everywhere else. So here is a music track from the Amiga system. As you can probably hear, the Amiga sounds pretty darn good. They had some pretty advanced music for the time, especially when you compare it to the base floppy disk version of the MS-DOS game, the MS-DOS version of Lemmings. So let's listen to that same exact track, but the MS-DOS version, which is pure synthesis. So listen to this one. I think everybody can hear the difference between the DOS version and the Amiga version. It's pretty easy to hear the difference. Now, I do want to listen to one other version, that being the version from the Philips CDI and the Panasonic 3DO, which actually used CD audio as opposed to synthesis. And my personal opinion, this sounds kind of awesome. So let's take a listen to that one. So as you can see, each platform had its own musical stylings, so to speak. They are all in the same ballpark, but definitely a little bit different between the different platforms. Which one is better? That's a personal preference kind of thing. I don't really feel the need to judge which platform is better. The music overall, though, it fits within the game. Is it the best soundtrack in the world? Not really. But it works. It's not something that is egregious. Although I will say, as I was playing this um, at various points, my wife would say, oh my God, are you playing that again? Like, I'm, I'm sick and tired of hearing that song. And of course, there's nothing I can do about it. I, I had to get past the levels. But 
um, for somebody who's not playing it, might be a little bit more irritating than the person that is actually playing the game. Now, talking about sound effects, there aren't a ton of sound effects in the game. There are some sound effects for the lemmings themselves and some of the some of the vocals, I'll say, very loosely, vocals. Like when a lemming explodes, before they explode, they kind of do like a... I can't do that sound, sorry. But they kind of do that noise before they explode, and there are some other sound effects that go along with that. The most important sound effect in the game, from my perspective, is the three click sound effect that happens before a builder stops building so builders just to refresh everybody's memory get 12 blocks to build before they stop building and they start becoming a walker again the builder and they get up to near the end of when they're almost about to run out of blocks their last three blocks that they put down will have a click that you can you can hear which basically lets you know uh uh-oh this builder is about to run out of bricks, so if you need to keep building, as a lot of the levels oftentimes make you do and make you continue to build, you know you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to reapply the build skill to that individual lemming, otherwise it's just going to start being a walker, and if you're further into the level and you're up really high, you may just end up dying and having to restart the whole freaking level, which I've had to do countless times throughout playing the game. So that sound effect is incredibly important. Is it a is it an amazing sound effect? Does it make my eardrums sing? No, it does not, but it is important within the context of the game. So, switching to narrative and story. There's not really a narrative or story here. Your whole goal is to save lemmings. I do know that there were some versions of the game that did have a full motion video sequence, and this was an animated full motion video sequence, so not an acted kind of thing. But there were some versions of the game that did have a full motion video sequence at the beginning, which I guess provided a little bit of overview as far as saving the lemmings and things like that. Okay. I mean, it's not a, this is not a story-based game. It's a puzzle-based game, and it's, it's basically a collection of puzzles over the various levels in the game. So there's really not a narrative here, and that's okay. Not every game needs a narrative. If it's not going to, if it's not a story, then there's no story. So there's really not much to talk about here. But there is a lot to talk about when we start talking about the playability of the game or the controls of the game. Now, overall, the controls worked really well. You basically use the mouse, and you can use the keyboard as well, but you basically use the mouse to select skills from the panel of skills at the bottom of the screen, and then you click on individual lemmings to apply those skills. Now, you would think that's probably sufficient. Later on in the game, though, there are some levels with incredibly tight timing where in order to be successful, at least in order for me to be successful, I had to learn the keyboard shortcuts to allow me to either quick select skills without having to drag my mouse down to the bottom of the screen, click on a skill, and then click back on a lemming, or just pause the game really, really quickly because I wanted to be able to assess the situation and figure out what my next step should be. So to do that, you have the F keys, the function keys across the top of your keyboard could be used to basically shortcut to an individual skill or to adjust the rate at which lemmings were entering a level or pause the game, whatever. So those controls, being able to use the keyboard in conjunction with the mouse was incredibly important, at least for me, to be able to beat some of those later higher difficulty kind of levels. Now, if you look in the manual, there is actually a way to control the entire game using your keyboard without a mouse. Now, personally, 
knowing what I do about the game and knowing how I, how I had to complete the game with the mouse and the kind of things that I had to do to control and make sure I actually saved enough lemmings at the end of the day, controlling this game via just a keyboard, I think would be almost akin to torture. I don't know how you would do it. I mean, it's possible, it's feasible, but at some of the higher level difficulty levels, And some of those levels that had really, really, really tight timing, I guess you could pause the game constantly, but that breaks the flow of the experience from my perspective. So I would think if you're going to be having to use the keyboard exclusively, you're going to have to do a whole heck of a lot of pausing because holy cow, I can't imagine that being an effective way to play. If any of you have played it like that and that's your preferred control mechanism, please let me know because I would love to ask you some questions. I just don't see how it could work. I think the mouse is just such a more more natural interface for this kind of experience. So it's just, I can't see how it's done. Anyway, there are a couple of frustrations here as far as the playability and controls go. One of the biggest, which I only learned a semi-secret to later on in the game, is that a lot of times we were talking about crowd control. And we were talking about how lemmings need to be controlled in certain areas. And by doing that, you would create situations where the lemmings would become really, really, really bunched up sometimes. And then sometimes you had to assign certain skills to those lemmings that were bunched up that might require it to go in a certain direction. So just as an example, let's say you had two blockers set up, one on the left, one on the right, and you had a ton of lemmings walking back and forth between them constantly ad nauseum. Well, one of the ways to get past a blocker is to build a ramp that goes over their head, and then all of the lemmings would run up that ramp as they're going in that direction, they would bounce over the blocker's head, and they would be able to continue on the level. Now, when the lemmings are individual, when you can individually click on a lemming easily to build a ramp, no issue. When all of the lemmings are bunched up, you run the very real risk of clicking on a lemming and having it build in the opposite direction of what you intended, which basically means that you're going to get screwed. <laughs> you're going to, this is not going to be a good outcome for you. So you may have to restart the level at, at the worst case, or you may just have to kind of rethink your whole strategy at a little bit less of a worst case scenario, but it's not great. Now, what I will say is one of the things that I, that I learned later on in the game is I think the way it works is the later a lemming is released into a level, the higher priority it has as far as selecting it for a skill. So what that means is if you can segment the individual lemmings into groups and you look at the group and you can find a group that has a relatively low number, like if you mouse over it and and the little display screen says Walker 1, Walker 2, Walker 3, Walker 1, Walker 2, whatever, something like that. And you have another group moving in the opposite direction that says Walker 7, Walker 8, Walker 9, or or something like that. The ones that have the 7, 8, 9, I believe, will get the priority if you click on an area where there are two different sets of lemmings. So if you have a Walker 1 and a Walker 9 next to each other and you click on them, I believe, at least this is the way it was working later on for me, if you click on it, Walker 9 will get the priority. So if you can determine in which direction that walker is moving, you can hopefully try to control the direction of how you're going to build or how you're going to utilize the skills a little bit better than what you would otherwise. So that was a trick I learned later on in the game. 
I will say that as far as the overall playability goes, while this was a really smooth game, really smooth learning curve, and I enjoyed the controls, and the controls were pretty tight for the most part, the execution of each level is sometimes even more difficult than figuring out the puzzle for the level. So there's two different aspects that go into playing this game. There is the overall their overall puzzle, figuring out how to get from point A to point B with all these lemmings. Once you figure that out, and there's a number of different solutions that can apply to individual puzzles. It's not like there's a one-size-fits-all, which I think is one of, the, one of the things that makes this game such a genius puzzle experience, in that you don't need or you don't have a single solution to a puzzle. There are any number of ways you can solve each of these situations that you find yourself in. But what happens is you figure out the puzzle, and then the actual execution of doing that can sometimes be even more difficult than figuring out what the solution or the proposed solution that you're trying to do is because of some of those things we were talking about, like bunching up the lemmings and not being able to select the lemming you really, really want to select appropriately. Or sometimes it's just the number of skills that you have available in a given level that, yes, you may have a plan, you may know how to solve the puzzle, but you have such limited skills or limited skills available to you for a given level that you have to be very, very precise with how you utilize the skills, otherwise you're going to run out. And the biggest one that has the issue there for me, once again, is the builder. Because if the angles, once you play it for a while, you'll understand the rough angles of the platforms or the ramps that they create, and you'll get pretty good at being able to judge where to start them up and where to where to position them and things like that. But until you do, it's a little bit of a crapshoot, and it is definitely one of those things where you may know exactly what you want to do, but you're just, your execution is just not there. You don't build at the right spot, which means your angle is too low, which means you can't, you can't traverse this wall or you can't pass through the wall appropriately, or you miss the hole that you're trying to get into. And then your whole level is done and you have to restart it. Restarting levels is a thing in this game. It's actually okay. Most levels are pretty darn short. I think one of the longest levels are like in the seven to nine minute time limit range so these levels are not that long they're not that big uh, so replaying them that's fine it's not like the worst thing in the world it's it's definitely there is frustration here <laughs> this is not a game where you just play and you just have pure fun there is a lot of fun and enjoyment that comes along with it but there is also frustration and i think that's pretty much just normal when you talk about puzzle games in general you're not gonna go in there and just have 100 fun if you don't have the frustration that means probably the puzzles are not quite as difficult as they could be because ultimately you want that sense of fulfillment that comes with actually achieving something and not just doing something. So that's why I think the game does actually work. So overall, how did it feel to play this? Wow, I had a great time. I really did. I, I Like I told you, it was frustrating sometimes. The execution for a lot of the skills and a lot of the levels have to be spot on, especially at the later stages of the game. Uh, one of the examples I didn't mention is the timing of the bombers. Uh, and, and we did mention that a little bit before, but some of the levels you have to be really, really precise in the timing of, of your bombs. And sometimes you have to have multiple consecutive bombs lined up so that you almost have a, a domino effect going on where this one explodes and then a second later the next one explodes and you're able to get through the level it is it is really tricky sometimes very very fulfilling very great to play but but really really tricky one of the things i absolutely loved and something i didn't realize because when i was a kid i played lemmings but what i didn't realize was that when i played lemmings as a kid 
I pretty much only played the very easiest difficulty level, which I think was fun. So I played the fun difficulty level, and I thought, I'm a genius. I am just ro- rolling through this game. Like, this is nothing. I don't know what everybody's talking about. Lemming's difficult. <laughs> Whatever. And then I realized when I went back to play it just a few weeks ago, well, that was just the really, really, really easiest level. So if you want to play the game and you want to feel like a genius, but have a ton of fun doing it, play the fun difficulty level and stop there. That is my recommendation because you will feel like you are just able to solve any puzzle that they throw at you and it will make you feel really great. If you actually want to experience the game, then of course progress through the other difficulty levels, which gets really, really challenging. One of the things I really love, though, as the challenge ramps up, because there is, like I said, a really, really smooth learning curve. But one of the things that I really loved is the fact that skills that you otherwise wouldn't think of combining will eventually be combinable in order to solve later puzzles and actually have to be combined in order to solve later puzzles. So even though you only have eight skills, there are actually combinations of skills that will allow you to execute certain puzzles that you otherwise wouldn't be able to execute. I'll give a couple of examples. Blockers are normally just blockers. They will stay blockers forever and ever and ever once you make them a blocker until you blow them up. Well, it turns out that if you dig underneath the ground of a blocker, you can return the blocker to a walking state which is incredibly important when you get up to some stages that require very, very high percentage, if not 100% saving lemmings. And if you use blockers by default and you don't think about digging under them to release them, they will stay blockers and they will die or they won't be able to be saved in the level. And that basically means you can't meet your requirement. So blockers can be returned to walkers by digging under them. Same kind of situation with uh, diggers and miners. If, and bashers, for that matter. If you're digging or mining or bashing and you need to stop, you need to stop going in that direction for whatever reason, you're about to go off the side, you're about to drop through the world, whatever, you can turn them into a builder and they will build for a couple of pixels. And the way builders work is they will keep building up until they either use up their 12 blocks or until they bounce into something. So if you bounce into a wall, they'll stop building and go in the opposite direction. Well, if you're bashing through a wall and you get up near the end and you start a builder and you want to go in the opposite direction, if you're still within the small crevice that a basher has created or that a digger or a miner has created, you will by default create a couple of blocks, but because the blocks go up in a in kind of a vertical diagonal kind of direction, eventually you're going to bump your head on the wall and you will stop building and start going in the opposite direction. So in that way, you can cancel out of an action, whether it's build, whether it's digging or mining or bashing, you can kind of cancel out. You can also combine skills and they actually change the way that the lemming is referred to. So if you take a lemming and you apply the floater skill as well as the climbing skill, they become an athlete, which is awesome. I mean, it doesn't really do anything other than the fact that they can both float if they drop off a high height as well as climb walls. But I thought it was really neat that they actually thought about that and assigned a different name to those specific lemmings. So a ton of depth here. There are so many new things that you discover that you never thought were possible early on in the game. It feels absolutely amazing to play. Even to this day, it feels amazing to play. 
and to solve the puzzles, especially when you when you really get through one of those challenging ones, it feels so good. And the level diversity, yes, levels are semi-reused in that you you basically have a very, very, very similar level that might apply to all the different difficulty levels, albeit with somewhat different layouts or different mixes of skills or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's just that darn good. And you will see levels that definitely repeat themselves, but they have different twists included. And every single level feels, for the most part, unique. One of the things I didn't mention, too, which I found amusing, is each level actually has a different name. So if you go into the level, the name of the level will oftentimes give you a little clue as far as what you need to do in order to solve the puzzle or to save the most number of lemmings or just how to tackle that specific puzzle. So I thought that was a neat little touch that they added. So with all that said, what is the verdict? Should you play Lemmings today? Yes. Unequivocally, yes. Lemmings is a classic puzzle game. I think everybody should try Lemmings. Like I said, there are a number of different difficulty levels. If you want something that's just going to be fun and you're going to feel good playing it, there are difficulty levels that let you enjoy that. If you want to be challenged, there are difficulty levels that let you be really, really challenged. If you want to feel that sense of accomplishment that comes from literally defeating everything in the game, it gives you the option to do that too. The controls work really well. The graphics look great for its age. Even today, the graphics would look fine. Sound and music, like I said, not the best, but everything else This is a classic. It is a classic game for a reason. Everybody should play this thing. Whether you played it before or you haven't, I really recommend everybody to try it out. It is is pretty easily available out there. If you do a little bit of searching, you can get a copy of Lemmings pretty darn easily. I really do recommend that you do it. I did play the game on actual uh, older hardware, so period specific or period related hardware it can of course run on dosbox as almost anything that was released on dos can so there's really no excuse go out and play it i highly 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 recommend it is pretty much all I wanted to talk about Lemmings. I really believe anybody that tries it is going to enjoy it, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. This was our first episode. If you liked it, this is pretty much the general style that each of our episodes will follow. We'll start with history, we'll go into the review, and we'll buy, we'll pass a verdict on whether you should play it today or not. We do have, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, there is some social media out there that you can connect with me on there's twitter which i have a handle at classic gaming t i also have an email address classic gaming today at gmail.com legitimately interested in hearing what you think if you have comments about the episode that we just talked about or the game we just talked about or future ideas for games to look at or just just comments in general i would love to hear them i am working to make sure that this podcast is available on pretty much every podcast engine that might be out there. So feel free to leave a review on your podcast aggregation engine of choice. I really don't care about star 
counts. I mean, obviously, I, I want everybody to enjoy the content that I'm making, but I'm not looking at, hey, leave me a bunch of five-star reviews kind of thing. No, I am legitimately interested in hearing what everybody thinks. If you're liking it, awesome. Let me know. If you're not, let me know that too, because ultimately that is the only way we can get better. And the only way we will build the community I want to build is if we're all honest with each other and we can keep pushing for awesomeness. So I really do appreciate anybody who takes the time to provide some feedback and provide some additional information and just ideas as we go. I'm excited about this. I hope you are all too. Our next episode will be focused on the full motion video adventure title Ripper, which that's going to be a fun one. That one's a, uh, that one stars Christopher Walken and a bunch of other Hollywood actors. This is back when everybody thought full motion video was going to be the thing. Uh, myself included. I love full motion video games. I'll tell you all about it at some point, but Ripper is coming up next. I hope everybody tunes in for that one when it releases, which should happen in around a week-ish or so. Still trying to work out the timing of releases. My goal, lofty goal, is to have episodes release every single week. That might deviate a little bit, especially earlier on as I get some stability around things, but that is my goal. So our next episode will be focused on Ripper. I hope you all join us. So with that Thank you all for listening. I truly do appreciate your time. I appreciate you listening to the podcast and any feedback that you might provide. I hope you all had as much fun as I enjoyed creating it. Until next time, everybody keep playing those games, keep enjoying them. And remember that sometimes the gaming experiences of the past are just as good, if not better, than today's gaming experiences. Bye, everyone. Bye.